Well, good morning. Um, you don't have to read the screw tape letter that you've got in front of us. We're actually going to have a guest appearance from uh, Screw Tape himself today, just to present the other side of the, the other the other side. You know, we want to be fair and you know, not just present God's side, but the devil's side. You know, of the issues we we've, we've been talking about. Anyway, you can. Look forward to that a little bit later on. We're on session four of, uh, of our class where we're looking at love. Um, we're looking at loving our spouse, loving our children, loving our neighbor, loving the world, loving, uh, loving everybody. The principles that we're talking about, I think, apply in almost all relationships. I mean, if you're going to, in one word, try and identify the ethic that's taught in the, in the scriptures, um, the ethic that God gives us. It's one of loving. Um, we've looked at two concepts, one Old Testament, one New Testament, that convey God's notion of love, God's picture of love to us. Hesed in the Old Testament, God's loyal love, um, is the focus of love in the Old Testament, God loving the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, even when they were constantly rebellious against him. And that's a mirror of us and our relationship with God, God, our rebellion toward him, our love, his love for us in the face of it. And then in the New Testament, uh, agape love, servant love, pictured in Jesus, rather, pictured in maybe a mundane picture of Jesus but yet a profound one of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, um, pictured in very dramatic, um, incredible terms in God's love for the world, whereby he gave his only son to die for our sins. And I've used agape as the framework for, uh, for the whole course because I think that agape, uh, the notion of loving um, another and looking out for their needs, trying to meet their needs, it brings together or is a framework for um, best understanding what all the different forms of love should be. Um, in English, I mean, I used, I used to think English was a sort of an odd language in that you've got this term love, which encompasses so many very, very different uh, things. Um, it encompasses love of food, love of, um, of things. It encompasses uh, you know, sec sexual love, romantic love, friendship. We use the term love to encompass what, what sometimes uh, seem to almost be opposite things. Well, you see that pattern in other languages. Um, it's a pattern uh, in, in German as well. You've got one one word, and uh, German, German scholars have struggled, struggled with that as well. My sense is that the, uh, that the best way to understand the overall framework of love and all these different things is the Christian notion of agape, because I think that all of these are means of expressing um, a desire for the best for others. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, 
first deals with what he calls the three natural loves. Uh, those are, got them on the board, um, affection, eros, which uh, encompasses romantic love and sexual love, and then friendship. And he says that all of these are good. All of these can give us a picture of the divine, but all of these can go um, in a bad direction. All of them can become demonic if they are allowed to take over. And so we looked at agape first as the framework, and we're beginning uh, today to, uh, to explore the three natural loves and uh, uh, try and recognize what might be their demonic sense, but also try and, uh, try and assess how chastened by God's love they might be a, uh, an expression of real love. The first one we're going to look at is affection. Affection is, um, well, a feeling of fondness or tenderness, um, especially of parents to offspring. Uh, the, I think the, the dramatic, very touching picture of affection is a, a mother nursing a child or caring for a, uh, for a child. Um, it's um, a love relationship that in that picture is both a gift love and a need love, the child needing the uh, care of the parent and feeling love towards the parent from that, the mother um, giving a gift to the, uh, to the child. It's a love that's not necessarily shared among equals. When we look at romantic love and when we look at friendship, we'll see that those are more um, loves that are shared on an equal plane. But affection, I mean, you, you can have, you know, the parent to the child. Um, you can, you have affection, hopefully, for your pets. I guess I have greater affection for our puppy dog than I do for our parrot, but I won't get into that. But. <laughs> But you, uh, you have affection for your pet. Someday after a hard uh, time at work, you come home, all you want to do is take the pet for a walk, be with some, someone who's not demanding of you, <laughs> just sort of be there and enjoy their presence. Um, or have, the, have your dog curl up in your, in your lap and keep you warm. Or on these hot days, maybe that's not what you want. But... Um, but anyway, I mean, it's, uh, it's not necessarily a relationship among, among equals. Um, I think at almost every school that's had a janitor for any period of time, there's a, there's a sort of a sense of affection for the, for the janitor at the school. Um, the, uh, um, in the scriptures, there's, there's not, it's not that there's a Greek or Hebrew word for affection that, uh, that jumps out at us, but we certainly have descriptions of God love, God's love for us uh, that um, are pictures of affection. And the word gather is often used in a way that I think pictures God's affection for us. And often he parallels his love for us in, to the way that we might love animals or we might love our children. Uh, Jeremiah 23.2, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. Um, a common picture of God as our shepherd and 
you know, there you have the picture of unequals and sort of love and care for, uh, for animals that, uh, that's present. Matthew 23, 37. Jesus says, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then Isaiah 49:15, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Um, so those last two verses, uh, both the sort of picture of parent and child, uh, um, the, uh, the, the affection that God feels towards us. We see uh, pictures of affection in stories of parents and children, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, uh, stories of Abraham and Sarah with Isaac, and Isaac with his children Jacob, uh, Jacob and Esau. And uh, the the love of the the love of the family. I mean, um, a person who's in a, in a good family knows that uh, the family can be a shelter in a in a harsh harsh world. Um, C.S. Lewis, and I was surprised at his percentages here. He says affection is responsible for nine tenths of whatever solid and durable happiness there is in our natural lives. That's an especially surprising statement uh, given some of his experiences with, uh, within um, his, his family. We won't, won't, won't go into it, but he wound up uh, caring, I mean, creating basically a family with the mother of a friend of his from the war who died. They, uh, they um, made a, uh, an agreement that if either of them died in the war, that the other would care for the, uh, the family of the one that had died. And C.S. Lewis basically adopted the, uh, the mother of his friend who was killed in the war. And descriptions of that relationship um, make it clear it's a very challenging relationship. And you can, you can see that reflected from time to time in his, uh, in his writings. At the same time, though, he had a wonderful relationship with, uh, with his brother, um, though his brother was an alcoholic and presented his own challenges. And then he, uh, he, he uh, did marry for a, t for a time, or for a short while before his, uh, his wife died um, of cancer. He died, he married her knowing that she would probably die shortly. Um, but anyway, um, he, he sees and experienced, I'm sure, affection with all, with all, of, the, all of these folks. But nine-tenths of whatever is solid and durable happiness, um, high praise for what affection can bring. But nearly all of the characteristics of this type of love are ambivalent. Your homework for last week was to, uh, to think about ways in which affection might go wrong. Because again, that's part of the theme of Lewis's book, is each of these natural loves can go wrong if left to its own. What are, what are ways in which affection might go wrong? And I'll give you extra credit if you point, point to biblical examples, but you don't necessarily need to point to biblical examples. You might have, you're very likely to have examples within your own family or examples within your, within your neighborhood. How might affection go wrong? 
maybe with the uh, David's son, what is it, Absalom and Tamar or something, where there was the, it seemed like there was affection, but the son kind of turned it into rape and incest and all sorts of stuff. Okay, good. Yeah, that's there. Uh, there you think, I think you have examples of both uh, affection gone wrong and romantic love and sex gone wrong. So maybe we could study, study that and cover, uh, uh, cover a, a lot of these uh, subjects. But uh, David's son Absalom and, and Tamar, um, yes, you know, good example of a situation where the, um, the affectionate relationship within the family um, becomes a matter of Taking, adva taking advantage of, uh, of someone. Um, good. Some of my best book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, screw tape, hold on. You'll, you'll, get, you'll get your chance. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll hear from screw tape uh, l later. Um, other examples of, of, of affection gone wrong are ways in which um, it, might, uh, it might err. I'm thinking, you know, John talked about possess, not possess, but um, with our children, surrendering our children. If your affection is so strong for them that you start to smother them or, like, interfere with their adult relationships, that would be, I think, an area where we're Okay, very good. I mean, affection, and as you say, particular, and as John in the sermon today uh, said, um, affection is appropriate with, uh, in a relationship with, uh, with children, but at some point you want them to grow to be your equal. And by caring uh, too much for their needs, never really getting them, to, uh, in enabling them to stand on their own two feet, you can um, keep them in a childlike state. Um, and uh, I think that's a, that's a great example of the way the devil, sorry, sorry, Mr. Screwtape, but the, <laughs> the devil can twist love because caring for a child, nursing a child, a very beautiful picture, but as a child grows, you want them to be able to, uh, to stand on their own, own feet. Um, C.S. Lewis gives a, gives a wonderful picture of a woman, he names her Mrs. Fidget, and um, Mrs. Fidget in his story has now just died. Uh, the vicar says Mrs. Fidget is now at rest. Let us hope she is. That's what's quite certain is that her family are. <laughs> um, this is a congenital uh, danger within the uh, maternal instinct. Um, um, it's one that needs to, needs to give, therefore needs to be needed. But the proper aim of <clears throat> giving is to put the recipient in a state where he no longer needs our gift. The hour when we can say, they need me no longer, should be our reward. But the instinct simply is in its own nature. It has no power to fulfill this law. It has to be chastened by a higher love, that love of charity. 
Mrs. Fidget very often said that she lived for her family, and it was not untrue. Everyone in the family knew it. <clears throat> she did all the washing. Uh, they could have afforded to send the washing out to a laundry, and they frequently begged her not to do it, but she did. There was always a hot lunch for everyone who was at home and always a hot meal at night. Even in the midsummer, they implored her not to provide this. They protested almost with tears in their eyes and with truth that they liked cold meals. She always sat up to welcome them when they were out late at night to two or three in the morning. Uh, you could always find the frail, pale, weary face waiting for you like a silent accusation. Um, um, she was, in her own estimation, I'm no judge myself, an excellent amateur dressmaker and a great knitter. And of course, unless you were a heartless brute, you had to wear the things she gave you. Um, she bore the whole delicacy of the daughter's um, physical condition alone, though people suspected that the daughter was not as delicate as Mrs. Fidget thought she was. Mrs. Fitchett would work her fingers to the bone for her family. She used that phrase. They couldn't stop her, nor could they, being decent people, quite sit still and watch her do it. They had to help. Indeed, they were always having to help. That is, they did things for her to help her do things for them, which they didn't want done. As for the dear dog, it was to her, she said, just like one of her children. It was, in fact, as like one of them as she could make it. But since it had no scruples, it got on rather better than they did. <laughs> and though vetted, dieted, and guarded within an inch of its life, contrived sometimes to reach the dustbin or the dog next door. So, I mean, that's maybe um, a dramatic and extreme picture of that problem that, uh, that might be present there with affection. Um, other other dangers that accompany affection. Maybe think of some of the biblical stories and problems that uh, that arose. Stalkers come to mind. Stalkers. Affection gone overboard. Yeah, <laughs> would be affection gone uh, gone gone overboard. Well, we um we see in. The stories of, um, of Jacob and Esau and their relationship with, uh, um, with, uh, with their family and in the story of, uh, of, of Joseph, um, his relationship with his father, examples of parents having favorites and that can be a, uh, a problem. Jacob and Esau, each of the parents identifying one of them as the, the favorites, feeling a stronger affection towards uh, one and towards the, uh, the other. Uh, Joseph's father showing preference for him over the, uh, the rest of the brothers and the brothers resenting uh, that. Um, so affection that's maybe not equally distributed within the family can be a problem. Um, we talked earlier about uh, David's son Absalom um, and his um, distorted affection for uh, his half-sister. Um, Absalom's own character may very well have been, probably was a, a, a function of David's distorted affection towards him. 
Um, it was a failure to discipline his son, Absalom, that maybe led to uh, David, to, to Absalom's uh, distorted character as well as the distorted character of others within David's family. Lewis notes that uh, affection can lead to a loss of courtesy. I mean, one of the nice things about the family is that you can relax and kind of be, in, be yourself when you get home to the, uh, to the family. There's a good bit of teasing that can go on within the family, which can be good. Um, that can, uh, can go overboard. Um, I guess just the fact that I was reading C.S. Lewis and his being British reminded me of, the, uh, of all the British TV shows where the husband refers to the wife as old thing. I don't know whether, I don't know whether wives appreciate that as a... No. <laughs> no, no. You don't have to wonder. <laughs> as a sign of affection or not, I, get, I gather not. Um, but, uh, and then there's, uh, there can be a controlling affection. Um, a sense that you have affection for a, uh, a child, um, and, uh, but that can lead to a desire to, to shape the child in, in your own image. Um, we, of course, you know, see, see, I guess the big, you know, I, I think maybe the biggest problem is fathers who want uh, their children to follow them in their professional um, pursuits. Uh, at times, or to be involved in the same sports that they're interested in. Uh, maybe to be good at the sports that the father never was very good at, and an inability to allow the, uh, the child just to um, be himself. Um, you know, a controlling affection. Uh, some of you know Jane Austen's uh, novel and the movie Emma, wonderful novel, wonderful. Um, movie uh, as, as well. Well, in it, Emma is socially su superior to Harriet Smith and uh, sort of adopts her um, almost. She, I mean, she in fact, is um, abandoned and, uh, and is living in, a, in an orphanage, but Emma adopts her and takes her on as her project. Um, she wants uh, um, Harriet to, to be what Emma wants her to be and part of the, part of the um, problem that's uh, that's been dealt with in the in the book and the movie is uh, are, is created by that. Affection produces happiness only if we combine it with godly virtues of decency, reason, justice, and goodness. Well, that's uh, that's affection. We're going to take a look now at uh, eros. Today we'll we'll focus mainly on romantic love. Uh, next week we'll talk a bit about, uh, about sexual love. The two very often are combined. Uh, they don't necessarily need to be so. I think each creates its, uh, its own joys. Each can create its own sorrows as well. Uh, the Bible here as well presents some wonderful pictures of romantic love. Um, you have Stories uh, again in the uh, the the Old Testament of the um, of the uh, um, patriarchs and their and their wives and often described in very beautiful terms their love for one another. Um, 
the uh, Song of Solomon is a, is a uh, story of, of love. You shouldn't lead, let your children read it until they're about uh, maybe 16 or so. <laughs> um, but uh, a, a picture of both romantic love and, uh, and sexual love. In it, uh, romantic love is at first a delighted preoccupation with, uh, with the beloved. Uh, then it uh, develops um, and becomes a desire for the, uh, the beloved. And by the way, if you're married um, and become preoccupied with someone else, um, that's the stage at which to, uh, to draw the line and cut off the relationship and, and chasten it. Don't let it develop into, the, um, into further um, don't let it develop further. Well, we, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, um, we've been presenting mostly God's perspective on the things that, uh, that we've discussed. We're not going to give equal time to, uh, to Satan, but we do have a uh, visitor who's, uh, who's come to join us to kind of present the, uh, the opposite position. Uh, those of you that aren't familiar with, uh, with screw tape, screw tape is uh, one of the, uh, the devil's uh, lieutenants, and uh, we know something about him because C.S. Lewis was able to uh, get a, uh, a series of letters that screw tape wrote to uh, one of his minions um, in which he's advising this uh, junior devil um, how to... Uh, control and lead astray a, uh, um, an individual who's fairly recently come to faith. Anyway, um, shall we give a, a hand to Mr. Screwtape who's come to join us? I despise all of you. Have I mentioned I despise all of you? <laughs> Letter 18. My dear Wormwood, even under slub garb, you must have learned at college the routine technique of sexual temptation. And since, for us spirits, this whole subject is one of considerable tedium, Though necessary as part of your training, I will pass it over. But on the larger issues involved, I think you have a good deal to learn. The enemy's demand on humans takes the form of a dilemma. Either complete abstinence or unmitigated monogamy. Ever since our father's first great victory, <laughs> yeah, we have rendered the former very difficult to them. The latter, for the last few centuries, we have been closing up as a way of escape. We have done this through the poets and novelists by persuading the humans that a curious and usually short-lived experience which they call <laughs> being in love is the only respectable ground for marriage, that marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent. 
and that a marriage which does not do so is no longer binding. <laughs> this idea is our parody of an idea that came from the enemy. The whole philosophy of hell rests upon recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that oneself is not another self. My good is my good, and your good is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside, or by absorbing. A self does the same. With beasts, the absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of will and freedom out of a weaker self into a stronger. To be means to be in competition. Now, the enemy's philosophy is nothing more nor less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. He aims at a contradiction. Things are to be many, yet somehow also one. The good of oneself is to be the good of another. This impossibility he calls love. And this same monotonous panacea can be detected under all he does, and even all he is, or claims to be. Thus, he is not content even himself to be a sheer arithmetical unity. He claims to be three as well as one in order that this nonsense about love may find a foothold in his own nature. At the other end of the scale, he introduces into matter that obscene invention, the organism, in which the parts are perverted from their natural destiny of competition and made to cooperate. His real motive for fixing on sex as the method of reproduction among humans is only too apparent from the use he has made of it. Sex might have been, from our point of view, quite innocent. It might have been merely one more mode in which a stronger self preyed upon a weaker. As it is, Indeed, among the spiders, where the bride concludes her nuptials by eating the groom. <laughs> Love that. Anyway, but in the humans, the enemy has gratuitously associated affection between the parties with sexual desire. He has also made the offspring dependent upon the parents and given the parents an impulse to support it, thus producing the family, which is like the organism, only worse. For the members are more distinct, yet also united in, in a more conscious and responsible way. The whole thing, in fact, turns out to be simply one more device for dragging in love. Now comes the joke. The enemy described a married couple as one flesh. He did not say a happily married couple. 
or a couple who married because they were in love. But you can make the humans ignore that. You can also make them forget that the man they call Paul did not confine it to married couples. Mere copulation for him makes one flesh. You can thus get the humans to accept as rhetorical eulogies of being in love what were in fact plain descriptions of the real significance of sexual intercourse. The truth is that wherever a man lies with a woman there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. <laughs> From the true statement that this transcendental relation was intended to produce and, if obediently entered into, too often will produce affection and the family, humans can be made to infer the false belief that the blend of affection, fear, and desire, which they call being in love, is the only thing that makes marriage either happy or holy. <laughs> the error is easy to produce because being in love does very often in Western Europe precede marriages which are made in obedience to the enemy's designs. <coughs> that is, with the intention of fidelity, fertility, and goodwill. Just as religious emotion very often, but not always, attends conversion. In other words, the humans are to be encouraged to regard as the basis for marriage a highly colored and distorted version of something the enemy really promises as its result. Two advantages follow. In the first place, humans who have not the gift of continence can be deterred from seeking marriage as a solution because they do not find themselves in love. And, thanks to us, the idea of marrying with any other motive seems to them low and cynical. Yes, they think that. <laughs> they regard the intention of loyalty to a partnership for mutual help, for the preservation of chastity, and for the transmission of life as something lower than a storm of emotion. <laughs> well done, don't you think? Don't neglect to make your man think the marriage service very offensive. In the second place, any sexual infatuation, whatever, so long as it intends marriage, will be regarded as love. And love will be held to excuse a man from all the guilt and to protect him from all the consequences of marrying a heathen, a fool, or a wanton. But more of this in my next, your affectionate uncle. Good day. Thank you. I despise all of you. Thank you. Well, and many thanks to Mr. Screwtape for for joining us. Uh, if if you all have.
questions, you might uh, <laughs> could ra raise those with, with him, but uh, what insights might we gather from Screwtape's letter? Brilliant. <laughs> well, for one, there's a fundamental difference in worldview. And what, uh, what are those worldviews? Well, I suppose if one were to say it most fundamentally, the, the line which Screwtape gave about the many in one being a joke, uh, whereas uh, uh, people who are well informed in that discipline know that that's the most ancient question of both East and West. And so to make it a joke is to dismiss the civilizational grounds of East and West. And to make everything separate so that the only conjoining could be by absorption or moving something out of the way, that's the opposite worldview. And that's the one that predominates today in world living in such a culture. Good, good. Very, very insightful. Obviously, you understand screw tape quite well. <laughs> Let me maybe point to something in the, in the screw tape letter that I think ex expresses it very, very straightforwardly. Um, Screwtape says the whole, this is at the top of page 94, he says the whole philosophy of hell um, is based on the notion that my good is my good and your good is yours. What one gains, another one loses. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of a radical individualism and I mean I think, that, I think there's, there's values to, to ind individualism. Uh, the culture in which we we live uh, grew, I think, in many ways, um, in 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 reaction to monarchy, the control of the Catholic Church, um, at the at the point of the Enlightenment, and then I think has swung over to a radical individualism, where at least when you hear. And I mean, this is often expressed in terms of, uh, of, of Americans' value. People are rugged individualists. They stand on their own. And a lot of times you hear, I think, people um, praising individualism when you look at their lives and they're anything but individualistic. They're in very loving families where they sacrifice for their children and for, for, for their spouses. Uh, but uh, you know the the devil's philosophy is uh, is one of everybody's looking out for themselves, um, whereas love calls on us to uh, to sacrifice, and indeed, as a screw tape letter, as screw tape suggests, he pictures it as one of the enemies. That is God's distortions, but. Uh, my good can be uh, developed by um, seeking your good. Other insights from Screwtape's letter. What do we think of his picture of, um, of, of marriage? Um, I mean, Lewis here, and also in his um, his his writing in the the Four Loves, and indeed in Mere Christianity, um, doesn't really go along with uh, 
modern notions, I think, of romance and the, uh, the pictures of romance as the great uh, good that, uh, that we find in modern novels and in uh, um, modern movies. Yeah. I was just thinking of that um, because some friends of mine just a couple years younger than myself are trying to make decisions about whether or not to pursue marriage. And I see in them, but I also see in myself, a tendency to take emotions, perhaps per perfectly good emotions, and make them somewhat tyrannical. Um, it's, it's easy to let our emotions um, define what we do. And no more, nowhere do I see this more strongly than in trying to make decisions about relationships, where people trying to figure out, do I really love him, do I not? And more often they're going on a, a, a storm of emotions, as C.S. Lewis wrote, in trying to determine what is the right thing to do in a relationship based on the strength of their feelings, which are constantly changing. And reading through this, I was struck um, by that and also by gratitude that um, the goodness of our relationships and being able to know the right thing to do is not dependent on a storm of emotions. Good. Good. Yeah, we, I mean, romantic love is fantastic. But romantic love can, uh, you know, if left um, on its own, can lead to some of the greatest uh, problems that exist um, in, in the world. Um, I, uh, I remember a, a client that I had one time, she had come to me for advice about getting a divorce. And she had been in a, a marriage which, from all of her descriptions, sounded um, what, wonderful. She and her husband had children, um, but um, her husband, uh, you know, worked hard, was a good provider, seemed to be a good um, husband and a, a good uh, fa father to the children, but she had met someone uh, that uh, she was going to leave him for, and she wanted to know whether she could take the children uh, w with her. And as we talked, I said, well, you know, what would be the consequences of that for your children, for your um, for your husband, for for you, long term, what's that likely to look at look like? And she was honest enough to to point to the problems that uh, that would draw from that. But um, but she said, but I but I but I love him um, in a very touching way, referring to the uh, the man that she wanted to to run off with. And it was a, a great picture to me of something that uh, Lewis talks about in the, in the Four Loves, which is that romantic love, um, in some ways, can be the most godlike of love. It uh, leads to enormous sacrifices that people um, make for one, one another. Um, but, as Lewis says, because it's most godlike, um, it can demand our worship. Um, it always turns, he says, or it can turn being in love into a sort of religion where I'll sacrifice my own interests, the interest of everybody else, for the, uh, for the sake of love. 
and I can remember telling this uh, this woman. I mean, I told her what the what the law would be, what would be likely to happen if she did uh, leave her leave her husband, and uh, and. I mean, she had talked about how she was in love with her husband when she when she first married him, and I um, threw threw in at the end, and she seemed to agree with me that um, the uh, you know the great um, great problems. I think I said something like, you know, your problem is that you want to be with whomever you're in love with at a particular point. And that can create enormous, enormous problems. Lewis, I mean, we'll talk next week about uh, sexual love and how its distortions can uh, can create problems. Hey. <laughs> Come on, screw tape. You've had, you've had, you've had your say. Um, it can create its distortions, but. I think, I mean, Lewis doesn't say this, this in particular, that um, maybe its distortions are more obvious than uh, the distortions that can arise from romantic love being uh, allowed to run, run its course. Um, and Gary Chapman, uh, you know, is on board with, uh, with Lewis here as well. Um, Chapman, uh, in a in a section that I that I quoted earlier, um, in the in the course notes that most marriages begin when a couple is in love. Uh, the in love experience is a quick fix for the emotional need for love, but it has, he says, a limited and predictable lifespan. Um, at its peak, it's euphoric. We're emotionally obsessed with each other. We could kiss forever. We have the illusion that our love is perfect. But he says the average lifespan of romantic obsession is two years. People fall, in fall out of love, either they withdraw, separate, divorce, and set off in search of a new love experience, like my client had done, or they begin the hard work of learning to love each other without the euphoria of the in-love obsession. Lewis places part of the blame on books and you know, this that was maybe in the in the 40s or so. Or so I would add uh, I would add movies, um, and in, indeed you look at some of those movies that were from the 40s and 50s, and you know, part of the tension is created by um, someone who emotionally um, is in love with someone and married uh, married to someone else. And the uh, you know the underlying theme of a lot of those movies is almost uh, one of you know these people should be able to uh, to part and go and live the uh, the romantic love that uh, that's now um, drawing them. But Lewis says, um, and this is from Mere Christianity, not from the Four Loves. He says people get from books the idea that that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the, the old one. Um, when I read that, I, I thought of the, uh, the movie Eat, Pray, Love. I don't know, has anybody seen Eat, Pray, Love with Julia Roberts? 
Um, well, you know, we had heard that it was a nice sort of romantic comedy, and so um, we we went to see it. Um, and I thought it was I thought it was a pretty good movie, at least as far as eating goes. Um, the praying and the loving part of it were <laughs> way off way off base, in my in my view. Um, but in this, you see Julia Roberts. She has flashbacks to when she and her husband are are married, and they have a very beautiful wedding ceremony. They're obviously in in love at the uh, at the time. But at the time that the movie starts, she's fallen out of love with uh, with him, and is uh, you know runs off with what's her current love, and you know they're living together for a while, and then. She falls out of love with him. She's uh, sort of looking for a more meaningful life. Um, she goes off to eat Italy and eats a lot of great food. She goes <laughs> off to, uh, that's the best part of the, of the, of the, of the movie. And she goes off to, uh, to India on a spiritual search. Um, there she gains the, uh, the great insight that, um, which is repeated several times in the movie, is that God is in you and God is you. God is in you and God is, is you. Um, you're a God. Um, I mean, I think that came straight from screw tape, am I right? <laughs> um, and so that's the insight with which he proceeds. And then the section that's on, that's on love it's, it's interesting because at one point she's tempted uh, sexually by this, uh, this guy that just wants to go out and have a, an evening romp with her. They have no relationship at all. And, uh, and she's at least matured to the point where she rejects that relationship. Um, but then she falls in love with, uh, with another guy who's fallen out of love with his uh, wife and um, left his family uh, uh, back, in, uh, back in the States. And then at the end of the movie, you know, to great um, romantic music, they're going off to an island together on a, on a boat. And, you know, the message that's given is that this romantic love will last forever. Um, well, I think in some ways the, uh, you know, the, the movie um, gets it right in many things, but that last message is, I mean, gets it right in that it's an honest portrayal of really, you know, distorted uh, relationships that are present within our, uh, our society. But that last picture, it seems to me, uh, is a lie because... A year from now, what's going to happen? I don't know. What do you think is going to happen a year from then? From then, Andrea, you, you've seen the movie. <laughs> I mean, the, the movie suggests that this love is going to go on forever. What do you think would in fact happen? What you're implying, that the restlessness, and once the in love feeling is gone, that there will be a restlessness there as well. Yeah. And so they're going to sort of go go off with, uh, you know, with now some somebody else, but that's the that's the theme that you get from the uh, what I think are the 
the cheaper romantic novels and the um, you know the the typical romantic uh, rantic movies that have been produced in the last fifty years. Um, you don't get the the realistic sense of love that, for example, you get from Jane Austen novels. Um, you know, which are ro romantic, you know, quite romantic in their way, but yet uh, give us pictures of real people with uh, with all of the the faults that uh, that they have. Um, the um, you know, a lot of harm can be done when this sort of love controls. Um, some say. You know how ro how romantic um, with you know movies of this such, but as Lewis notes, um, it can become just plain adultery. May involve breaking a wife's heart, deceiving a husband, betraying a friend, and deserting your children. Um, it can urge us to evil, and it has um, a very strong power. It can make one ready for any sacrifice except renunciation. Um, Lewis says, of, of all loves, romantic love is at its height most godlike, therefore most prone to demand our worship. It always tends to turn being in love into a sort of religion. Well, here's my question. Are Chapman and Lewis too hard on romantic love? <clears throat> Or are they right? Well, there may be a third option. Since I can't be claimed to be an expert on either Chapman or C.S. Lewis, I can't say. It might be more than either or. It might be that they've described the reality of romantic love well and its limits, but that it's also uh, uh, a possible step towards a, a, a greater affiliation. So uh, if, they're, if, they, if, they're, if, if they write in the first class, I'd say, ah, that's overdrawn. If they write in the second class, I'd say, okay, it's important to recognize the limits because most people don't. Yeah. Yeah, and the, I mean, and their focus in talking about being in love has been on its distortions, uh, maybe, maybe to counterbalance um, what we see in our society, which is, you know, sort of in, in praise of r romantic love as justifying everything and being being godlike, um, but at the same time, romantic love is fantastic, right, Denise? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's fantastic within the the relationship that God designed it to, it to to be, but it's it's a, you know, it's a love that needs to be channeled and directed, otherwise it can cause great evil. I had a friend in law school who um, was, um, he lived, lived in our house, it was a house of Christian, Christian guys, and he had uh, become great friends with uh, a woman that was kind of friends to uh, to all of us. But um, and he was um, considering marrying her. 
but he admitted that he didn't love her. He wasn't, he wouldn't describe his relationship as being in love. And when I say he didn't love her, I, I mean he didn't love her in the sense of being, being in love. Um, you know, in the sense that you see it in the movies and you see it in, you know, other couples, in the sense that he'd seen it with, uh, with, with our friends within the, uh, the, the community. But he was thinking he was thinking about getting married to her, and marriage, um, you know, made a lot could have made a lot of sense between them. But he wasn't he wasn't in love. I mean, they're both at a great stage in their lives to get married. They were friends. Um, they got along well together. Both Christians um, enjoyed a lot of this. Enjoyed doing things together, but not in love. What would your advice to them have been? Watch Fiddler on the Roof. Yes. <laughs> now, why do you say that? that yes. It's just such a beautiful song. You know, Do You Love Me? And they go through how they were put together by their parents, and they were together, and they have grown in Fourteen and, uh, years I've washed your clothes. I cooked yeah. your food. But do you love me? <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful story. And, you know, I think it aptly describes what C.S. Lewis is trying to convey. You know, that we have set aside our reason. We have set aside our reflective will when we say, I must have this emotional energy for me to ever enter into what should be a growing relationship in love, a growing mingling of two souls together. Um, and out of that, and the blessing of God of one flesh, will come all the love that I need to sustain it, to sustain me, and to grow my family. So you know, the Fiddler on the Roof, I, I think, did a, a wonderful job of conveying that. So I would have them watch that movie. Good. Any other thoughts on that? I mean, if you've got children, you know, do you, do you suggest that they need to be in love? I mean, the Fiddler on the Roof was um, from a different culture. I mean, that was a culture where parents uh, made, the, made the match and uh, put, put people together. And he had learned to love his wife after 14 years. <laughs> um, but of course, in our culture, you get to choose who you want to marry, and you know, in general, the message is that it would almost be wrong, it would be sinful to marry someone if you weren't in love with them. Um, you know, Lewis, um, in another one of his books, just outlines all the different reasons that uh, that someone might get married. I mean, in love is one of them, but he puts it at the bottom of the list. You know, marry for friendship, marry for the sake of ha being able to have children and, uh, and, 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 and raise them. What book is that? I Do think you know? that, is that Mere Christianity? Yeah. I think it's in Mere Christianity, um, in, the, in either the chapter on marriage or the chapter on, uh, on, on love. Um, anyway. I mean, I think uh, as uh, you know, as as Lewis argues, 
the natural loves, romantic love being one, being one of them, are wonderful things. They're wonderful things if they're chastened by charity, if they fit within the framework of all of the different loves and virtues and disciplines that, uh, that God has given us, if they're allowed to run rampant, um, to go off on their own, affection, romantic love, and the, uh, and the other ones can become demonic. I can't help but think of a, of a personal experience. Uh -huh. uh, I was in the, a sauna, and there was so much steam you couldn't see the other person. But there was this guy talking to his friend. He said, well, I said, I'm getting married. Really? Do you love her? No. Nah. So why are you getting married? I said, well, I'm 35. Professionally, be a good thing. We share certain things in common, so it's a thing to do. Tell that story because as I was listening to Bill, I like this first bit of advice, but not necessarily a second. <laughs> the first bit of advice was watch the movie, draw some conclusions, because I believe the answer to that is ultimately personal. Based on what I heard from this fellow, I felt sorry for the girl <laughs> and for them eventually, because uh, it didn't. I heard nothing about growth. I heard nothing about. All I heard was about the, the social pressures putting on him, he was at the age of meeting the expectation. And so, uh, to me, uh, I, if that's all I heard from that person, I allowed them to speak and they spoke for a long time in that song. <laughs> I'd say no. Right. But, the, a slightly bit of better advice I could say is, see that movie. But what I wouldn't draw is, that's what C.S. Lewis tells you to do. I don't believe that. Yeah. And we say, see that movie, you're not talking about eat, pray, love. You're, <laughs> talking, about you're talking, talking about fiddle on the roof. I mean, that, it sounds like your friend had a whole bunch of bad reasons for getting married. They were all, they, they were all socially legitimate right. and totally unsatisfying as how far did, as I was concerned. How did the marriage work out? Oh, well, I mean, these were two guys. They never saw their face. I just heard this conversation long for about <laughs> okay. 30, 40 minutes. I stayed longer in the sauna because I wanted to <laughs> <laughs> Well, the end, of, the end of my story is that uh, my friends got, got married. Um, we went to their, their wedding. Um, they, they've been married for, uh, for 30 years, have a couple of wonderful kids, and, uh, and, a, and a wonderful, wonderful marriage. Um, so, anyway, well, let, 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 let's, let's pray together. Uh, dear Father, thank you for C.S. Lewis. Thank you for Gary Chapman. Thank you for the insights that they bring to, uh, to love as we reflect on our own relationships with those, those around us. Help us to love them um, more, more deeply. Um, help us to love them uh, smartly. Uh, to be able to think about how we might do what, uh, what is best for them, how we might uh, meet, meet their needs. Um, many of us have children. We pray for our children. Uh, we pray that they would find good, good spouses um, for those that are, that are called to marry, uh, that they could find spouses that they could love in all the deep senses that, uh, that we've 
talked about during, uh, during our time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.